came to this country at the age of 14 as an immigrant from Italy. He had driven racing cars even before he came over here. This was the one he wanted more than anything else in the world. And here it comes, Mario. The checkered flag of victory. He's done it. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And you heard the call at the Indy 500 in 1969. And the man we're about to talk to in our American Dreamers series won that race. And it's quite a life story. And, of course, it's the story of Mario Andretti. Now, you know he's won the Indy 500, the Daytona 500, Formula One World Championships, Pikes Peaks, Hill Climb. And, my goodness, a racing icon would be... Well, just selling them short and joining us to talk for the hour in our American Dreamer series, Mario Andretti. Let's start where we always like to start all of our interviews in the beginning. Tell us about where you were born and tell us a little bit about your parents. Well, I was born in Italy um, and the region is uh, Istria and however now it's uh, Croatia. And there's uh, the story, obviously, it's one of the reasons why uh, the family immigrated to the States, because um, I was born in 1940, at the beginning of uh, World War II, and uh, uh, the region was uh, under Italy, uh, as it had been. But uh, after the war, uh, Italy lost the war, so they lost territory, and that's the territory they lost. Uh, and... Uh, uh, Yugoslavia occupied the region under hardline communism, under Marshal Tito, and uh, there was a choice for all of uh, the uh, inhabitants of the area to uh, succumb to communism or to maintain the Italian citizenship uh, uh, to uh, leave home and uh, become uh, refugees, basically, uh, back in mainland Italy. And, uh, and my family chose that you know, the latter part, uh, uh, to uh, maintain the uh, Italian uh, citizenship. And uh, we were refugees uh, in the city of Lucca in Tuscany for seven and a half years uh, before uh, my dad had uh, the opportunity to um, to come to America. We had uh, relatives uh, on my mother's side living in uh, America here in in fact, in Nazareth, where I live now, and um, and this, it was suggested that why don't you come here? Uh, we would uh, guarantee um, that you have a home, you know, and that's what they had to do to in order to, to obtain visas. And that's the story. And what did your dad do, Mario, there uh, in, in Italy? What did he do for a living? And what was it like for you as kids? I mean, you went from having a home to living through war-torn Europe, to now living in what I guess you could just call a, a camp, almost, a, it sounds like a, not a prison camp, because it wasn't, but a refugee camp couldn't have been that, that plush. Well, no, it wasn't. Uh, well, actually, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was nothing normal about what happened to us, obviously. Uh, and, uh, but uh, credit to my father. First of all, uh, the first part of the question, my dad uh, uh, was administrator of uh, land holdings from the family uh, on his uh, on his mother's side because he lost his uh, his parents at age two and four respectively, and he was raised by uh, 
a priest, the uncle priest, and but the family on that side own uh, about 2,000 acres of land, about 2,100 acres, and uh, seven tenants. And my dad was the administrator of that of those holdings. Then basically he was a farmer, and um, so he had no other skills. You know when we. Um, uh, when he moved on, and uh, that was a difficult part, obviously, uh, to be able to obtain uh, a professional job of some kind. And uh, and when we were while we were on the camp, as you said, I mean, uh, conditions were very very basic. But uh, again, my dad always provided for us. Uh, we were always uh, dressed properly and uh, went to school and uh, never cold and. Never hungry, you know. He always took took care of the family. Uh, that's a very proud man, and that's something that I've always looked up to be, to him because of uh, of that. He had uh, he maintained that responsibility in the best possible way. And he never quit, Mario. It sounds like he never quit on you, his family, despite the the toughest circumstances. So you're living in Italy. Uh, and you you see uh, an auto race, and there's one particular man that that moves you to think about, or at least dream about, uh, automobiles and car racing. Who is that man? What was that race in Italy? Well, the race was uh, the uh, Italian Grand Prix in 1954, and uh, the man was my idol. He became my idol. It was Alberto Ascari, who was at the time current world champion. Uh, for Ferrari, and as you can imagine, there's an Italian driving Ferrari and and being uh, so strong uh, as kids. Uh, I be you know I was very impressed by that and taken in all the way. And uh, as an idol, he uh, he just actually helped shape my future. To be honest with you, in my own mind, because between uh, my twin brother Aldo and myself. Uh, from there on, we did not have a plan B. I always say that, and that's a fact. You know, this is something that uh, we wanted to pursue no matter what. Had no idea how or when, you know, things were going to happen because there was, uh, you know, a lot of uncertainties in our lives. And uh, even as kids, you could obviously uh, understand that. But um, but the dream uh, never faded. You know, the dream stayed strong and. Uh, at first opportunity, uh, you know, we pursued it. You know, when we came to the States, two years later, Aldo and I started building a car to race locally. We're going to hold that thought, and when we come back on the other end, this incredible life story, a story that started in Italy, that was impacted by political tumult in Europe, and ended in a little town in Pennsylvania called Nazareth. The life of Mario Andretti, when we come back. This is Lee Habib. And this is Our American Stories. Around the world, ask anybody, you know, who is, who is the greatest American racing driver, I, I, I think 90%, literally, of the people around the world would say 
Mario Andretti. You just heard from auto sport writer Gordon Kirby describing the career of Mario Andretti. He's one of the great sports writers on automotive sports. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Dreamers segment. And we continue our conversation with Mario Andretti. You were lucky in this respect. You, you come to a place called America and to a small town called Nazareth. Not far away is a little dirt track. From what I from what I understand, Mario, right. and you and your twin brother, without your dad, I don't think your dad would have been a big fan of this and wasn't. Uh, talk about what you guys did. What was that first car? By the way, we love just asking people what their first cars were anyway. But what was that first car? And what did you and Aldo do? What was the first race? Talk about both of those things. Well, first of all, the uh, the car that we built was uh, a 1948 Hudson Hornet, which was uh, actually um a car a car that was uh brand that was very successful in nascar racing and that was uh not popular that car here at this local level but uh but we chose that you know with the help of some other you know couple other friends uh, which you always have the scientist somewhere that does the thinking <laughs> yep. and uh and we followed that advice and um and we built that car, and and uh, but uh, we didn't dare tell my dad because there were so many things uh, here. Um, you know, he knew that we were following motor racing, and um, and we were all in. And as kids, however, okay, all right, the kids are impressed by something, and uh, then Alberto Scotti is killed in, in, in the following year, 1955, uh, on a way over on a ship, Conte Biancamano. Uh, during the time that the 24 Hours of Le Mans was running, that's the time when uh, a Mercedes um, uh, went into the crowd and killed 85 people. So, so many negatives about the sport, always, you know, just fatalities here and there. Well, you know, my dad was certainly not a race fan of any kind. He never pursued, but uh, the only news that he was ever, uh, you know, that was ever coming his way was negative. So, uh, seen for us kids, you know, to even when we would hint about racing, he said, "Oh, you kids are crazy. Don't even think about it." Type of thing. So uh, he certainly did not, in any way, understand how strong we uh, believed in it and how strong, you know, how the passion that we already had developed. So anyway, we started building this car, and I didn't dare tell him, you know, uh, anything about it. And, um, and this was in 1957, two years after we arrived here. And, um, and in 1959, I took, we figure uh, it will take us four years to build this car, you know, to get all the money together and everything, uh, because you had to be 21 to race legally in those days, race professionally. Uh, and uh, so we figured we got time, but the car was finished uh, two years later in 1959. We were only 19, and we figured, you know what, we're not going to look at this car for two years before we race it. So uh, we had uh, we fudged the uh, birth date on the licenses and uh, keep saying, you know, which is a fact in those days. Obviously, there was no computer, so yep, you know, yep. it was easy to get by with that, and uh, we started racing at age... 19 without my dad knowing and the only defense that we had on that uh, or the buffer that we had there was the uh, language barrier you know because my dad obviously 
did not learn the language um, as quickly as we did. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you, you know, you, things, because we were winning races. And, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, I keep saying this, uh, which is a fact, and uh, at, at work, you know, his boss used to, you know, try to tell him, oh, your kids are really doing well. They just want to, he didn't understand. He thought right. that the boss was t- telling him how good he was at his job. So, um Again, it wasn't until the end of the season, at the very last race, an invitational race, that uh, Aldo uh, almost killed. You know, was almost killed in that race. He had a bad accident, which uh, you know we had a um, actually uh, fractured skull and all that. So he was in a coma for you know for a long time, and uh, he was even given his last rites that time. And my dad didn't even know it, but he, that's how he found out. He almost felt vindicated, you know, see, I told you guys, you know, type of thing. <laughs> yep, yep. And by the way, we we recall we, we spent about an hour just uh, talking about your story, and Aldo had said it was, he was sure glad you had to tell him you yeah, guys were I know. racing. It, uh, when Aldo finally came around weeks later, uh, he, uh, uh, you know, took him a while. After he opened his eyes and so forth, you know, it took him a while to actually speak. The first sentence that he said, he says to me, he says, I'm sure... You, I'm sure glad you had to be the one to face the old man. <laughs> okay, all right, we got him back. <laughs> uh, so your you, your career, your your brother was racing, uh, but you you stuck with it all the way. I want to talk to you about your mentors in this world of racing. Most business people have mentors, and I think athletes have coaches, mentors who bring them along. Who were who were key people in your life, Mario? Who, who allowed you to think you could do what you did, and who really made it happen for you, your well, team? I mean, there, was, uh, there were several people that believed, you know, uh, could see uh, the burning passion that uh, I had. And, uh, uh, you know, after this uh, stock, I didn't want to make a career out of, you know, local stock cars. I wanted to get into single-seaters. And, uh, and my... One of the first ones that actually helped was uh, my uh, now my wife, my wife's father, uh, and uh, and his partner. They, you know, I needed to buy a midget, a midget uh, car, a single seater to 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 run a three quarter midget to run indoor races in the winter, and that's where a lot of the owners will scout drivers, you know, for the full size midgets for the regular season, and uh, and I was I bought a. a a famous car, and I made a deal with uh, with Earl uh, Earl Hoke. It was uh, you know my uh, Hoke is my uh, my wife's maiden name, and uh, and they invested in that car, and that's what got me going. It was another plateau, a launching pad, if you will, because uh, I won some races. I was competitive, and uh, I got noticed, and I got a, a really good ride. Uh, with the Mateka brothers in uh, Midget, which were running the ARDC Club, American Race Drivers Club, uh, which was a very prominent Midget uh, uh, series uh, with all the icons of Midget Racing, you know, the Len Duncans, Tony Bonadier, some of the icons of Midget Racing is of the era. And, uh, and that, you know, then I started winning there. And this is a team that had never won any races, but I started winning for them. And then uh, uh, a team out of Indianapolis, uh, the Rufus Gray team, 
uh, a Rufus Grade individual. Actually, he owned a sprint car, and he had uh, a sprint car where he had some of the top names like Judd Larson driving for him and uh, USAC sprint cars. He took notice, and they obviously they all knew that I was interested in progressing. And he gave me a ride, and he became, you know, uh, sort of the mentor at the time, which brought me into, uh, uh, I would say, mainstream of IndyCar racing because even though it was not the top category, sprint cars is a step below the championship cars, uh, but I was driving against the top drivers because they were uh, migrating into sprint cars like A.J. Foyt, Roger McCluskey, Don mm-hmm. Branson, all the top drivers would be driving this, Parnelli Jones driving in these uh, sprint cars, and I would be driving against them, and all of a sudden I was started winning there. And uh, so, uh, but it was always, you know, like I said, certain individuals that just made the difference. And uh, and I seized the opportunity at the time. And quite honestly, uh, sometimes you, you get it right because uh, the main driver is hurt. In yep. those days, it was very popular. And that's how it was really happening. A lot of it was happening with me. Uh, but um, once I took over, you know, it seemed like uh, I held my own and, and uh, and earn my my way, you know, uh, into a solid ride. So uh, again, it was just uh, everything was by chance. You know, there was no guarantees anywhere. You had uh, uh, you could have all the plans in the world, but you had no way of uh, realizing or uh, trying to predict what was going to happen anywhere. You just had to be there and seize the opportunity, and that's really the way it worked out for me. You just had to be there and seize the opportunity, and that's what so many greats and so many people who, quote, get lucky or, quote, have opportunity, they're just there. And you're there often enough, and some pretty remarkable things can happen in your life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers series with Mario Andretti continues after these words from our sponsors. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return with our conversation with Mario Andretti, and we focus in on the family and the importance of family. I want to talk about your wife, because she played such an important part, Mario, and particularly in the early days where she was, in some ways, helping support the entire project. And how does a guy do this without a strong family background? It's got to be hard. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll tell you what, you have no idea uh, the important role uh, that she played, um, you know, in, in my career and and, uh, and, and in, indirectly encouraging me and backing me up because, uh, you know, Lee, uh, uh, 
you know, even as an individual, uh, she, I knew that she would take care of, like, you know, we got married, I got married young, and, and the career was going, I had kids, and I didn't have a steady job. I was relying on, uh, you know, just what I could earn racing, which, uh, you know, <laughs> it can be, yep. <laughs> it can be pretty sketchy sometimes, <laughs> right. but, but it worked, and, and she worked, you know, like even, to give you an idea, when, um, uh, when, 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 when I was driving, you know, when I was maintaining the uh, three-quarter midget that uh, her dad had financed, she was working, and uh, she was pregnant, and uh, on her way to one of the races, uh, she, she was just, like, sobbing a little bit, you know. I said, what's, what's the matter, Deanne? She said, I just quit my job. I said, you did what? Are you? She was seven months pregnant. <laughs> I said, you did what? How dare you? I said, how am I going to get this? Because I had to keep getting a fresh engine in there so they wouldn't smoke on the indoors. <laughs> I said, how am I going to pay for the engine? I said, you know, to keep freshening it up. She said, oh, no, this and that. So <laughs> as you can see, she was paying for me freshening up the engines <laughs> from week to week. You know, at Bob's motorcycle shop, you know, <laughs> so, and things like that. But uh, you know, we laugh about it, obviously. You know, but uh, she was a rock behind me throughout. You know, and uh, uh, and and again, you know, she she was never a race fan. She's not a race fan today. But uh, uh, what the heck? I mean, uh, she she had no choice. I guess uh, you know, and she knew that this was our path. And uh, even with the kids, and uh, she just. Uh, always made the best of it, you know, but um, she carried the burden, you know, the family makes sure everything is running smoothly and and, uh, and at the same time supporting me by just, you know, just just doing her thing, you know, being behind and uh, uh, it was never like, well, what I liked, it was the stability that she created because uh, uh, she always very in check with her emotions, you know, and uh, and it was never like, uh, you know, ticker tape parade if I brought home a trophy or, uh, you know, like a, a black stripe on her arm if I didn't. You know, it was, right. everything was even. You know, the hug when I came home with trophy or not was always the same. So that was really, uh, that was uh, what I needed. Yeah, lucky you, lucky you, Mario, is all and every man listening to this can say is lucky you. Yeah, um, for sure. And no doubt. And, and you know, your wife had to live through what was then a, a very dangerous sport. So it wasn't only that the income was sketchy in the beginning, like yeah. an actor or a minor league ball player. But, my goodness, those guys can't die every time they get in a car. So your wife had to deal with the, the risks that you had to deal with as well. Talk about uh, that the burden that imposed. Also, Mario, that kind of risk in your own life, because we're going to talk a little about risk. And you, you are, you're a person who puts risk into the calculus, uh, like anybody who does what you do and did for a living. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, the, the, the danger aspect, you know, was uh, looming, was always there because, uh, uh, obviously the sport, um, you know, in the 60s, 70s, they, you know, was certainly not as, uh, especially in the 60s, uh, uh, not as safe as it is today. And, uh, and yes, uh, we we lost a lot of friends. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, she made uh, she was friendly with many of the wives of my buddies, and and then uh, you know my best friend when uh, Billy Foster when he when he was killed, and uh, Judd Larson, and on and on. I mean, we lost so many. Uh, Ronnie Peterson. I mean, she was 
uh, obviously always the one that uh, thinking, you know, when is is he going to come home? You know, this uh, uh, after this race. So uh, the spectrum of of that was always there, and it was real. Uh, there was we were losing way too many, you know, and unfortunately, and um, and then I'm sure that 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 was always you know anxious moments for her as well. Uh, me as a driver, I never you know never dwell on that side obviously uh so i was pretty serene but uh, but her i could see that side of 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 her just dealing with this uncertainty um you know all the time every week um had to be a, a you know tough moments and uh, and 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 again you know just uh uh, uh could tell there were you know i, I only began to understand really what she was going through when I came out of the cockpit officially, you know, uh, because, you know, now watching, you know, my kids run and, and my grandson and so forth, uh, all of a sudden I have, uh, you know, different anxieties, you know, yep. that I ever experienced by driving, uh, by being active myself. Yep. I think most coaches know this when, or, or, or most athletes, when they're playing, it's one thing, then they watch their kids play. And it's like, oh, that's what my father was going through. Now, yeah. I, now I get go. it. There you go. Now yeah. I get it. You know, Mario, let, let's talk a little about the accolades. and We're, we're not going to spend too much time on the actual racing because I think what people know those things. What they don't know is the man behind the, the legend and the life behind it, and that's what we do here on this series. You were obviously your name driver of the year in three different decades. Remarkable. Driver of the quarter century and, of course, driver of the century in January of 2000. And, and Mario, you did this across every style of racing that there is. Talk about, what, if you could, the three most important victories in your life, the ones that, uh, that meant the most to you uh, and, to, and to your family. Well, I mean, to me, uh, probably the victory that uh, stands out the most on a personal level is uh, winning the Italian Grand Prix. Um, because that's where I saw my very first, uh, you know, international big, big time race. And that's where my dream really began, uh, or solidified. And, uh, and here we go, you know, I win in that place. And then, uh, I also clinched the world championship there in Monza, you know, so, uh, that has, you know, personally that nothing comes close to that, uh, the others are obviously there are many races there are very every race has got its own uh shining star if you know what i mean it's just uh but uh when you look at the classics those are the ones that uh you're judged by like uh, winning indianapolis or or uh or winning daytona type of thing you know because uh again those are the crown jewels of uh, the, the different series uh so you know everybody would focus on that i mean there were there were others for me uh uh from a personal level however you know here i go i go fourth is uh, uh winning over my son michael on father's day in portland 1986 <laughs> you know and yep. uh beating him by seven one thousandths of a second you know that type of thing you know? <laughs> i mean can you imagine and and uh, when i look back and uh how many times um, uh, Michael and I started on pole, or how many times we were on podium 
together while we were even teammates. You know, those are incredible moments in my life, you know, when uh, um, uh, bright moments. Uh, when I look back, I said, we could have never designed that, you know, but it did happen. You know, how fortunate are we? How blessed we are. And blessed indeed, how blessed we were to watch, if you're old enough to have watched Mario Andretti race, and how lucky we all are, how lucky he was to have a bride like he had always there with him. When we come back, some of our final thoughts with an American legend, part of our American Dreamers series. This is Lee Habib. This is our American Stories. More from Mario Andretti after these messages. Mario was one of those drivers. He was one of the bars that that, uh, that people would compare themselves to. I mean, for sure, when I started driving, you know, if I could if I could keep up with Mario, or if I could keep up with my dad, I'm doing good. And if I beat them, then I did great. This is Lee Habib, and this is our American Stories. And you just heard from Al Unser Jr talking about how Mario Andretti set the bar in auto racing, and few figures in sports ever do that. And where we left off last segment was talking about the importance of Mario's wife. But ultimately, this becomes a father-son affair. And, you know, as we learn, you can't force Mario, your sons, to do anything. Uh, You know that from personal experience with your own dad. You must have been really heartened when your own son and your own sons chose to follow you in this really risky but really exhilarating profession? Oh, indeed, yes, because uh, uh, that was their choosing. You know, it's uh, something that I feel I made abundantly clear that, uh, you know, if you're going to pursue this, um, I said, don't do it just because you think that I may, you know, I, I may like you to do it or uh, or any any of us. Uh, I said, just got to do it for yourself. If that's really what you want to do, I said, but do it for yourself, for your own satisfaction. And uh, and then, you know, when they make their choice, ultimately, uh, then you figure, you know, it's just like what no bigger satisfaction than having uh, your own kids pursue on a business, you know, something, you know, on your own business, you know, like if you own a business, yep. you know, they pursue and, and they cultivate it and uh, make a career of it themselves. And this is a business. I mean, a lot of people don't know the, the amount of money that goes into the preparation of the car, the amount of people that are employed by the crew, uh, the sponsors. The, this is, there are a lot of jobs on the line, uh, Mario. Talk about the business of this business, because it's not just like you're some celebrity jumping into a car looking as handsome as you always looked, and that's that. I mean, this is work, Mario. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a complex business, no question. I mean, it's a uh, truly a team sport, actually. I mean, uh, as a driver, uh, you have to have a piece of equipment worthy of uh, bringing results. And who can make it that? I mean, uh, then it's got to be a, a lot of people involved, engineers, mechanics, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, um, again, uh, there's... Uh, a lot that goes behind the strategies that go behind it, um, and um, and again, uh, uh, I I was always I only owned a team and drove for myself in one year in 1968. I didn't want to do that because I wanted to move around to different disciplines. 
I just wanted to drive. But the driver is, is a driver, however, always had um, input in the team. I wasn't just a contracted driver, okay, drive and shut up, you know, and bring right. us home a trophy. I always was very integrated within the team because um, I wanted to have a say as to my, who my engineers was and suggestions, blah, 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 and uh, and to have that type of harmony, you know, within the team. And, and that's the part that actually really worked for me very well. And um, I draw for some of the, you know, the, the icons in our sport over the years in different disciplines, and I was very, very, obviously this is what gave me the opportunity to bring home some results. You know, it wasn't always uphill for you, too. I mean, there were dry spells. And by the way, athletes experience this, too, Mario. How did you handle that? How did you cope? I mean, when things just aren't firing, so to speak, on all cylinders, how do you keep it together? How do you keep positive, especially with all the expectations? And actually, probably some people rooting for you to fail. Yeah, no question. I mean, there's, you, you've experienced all that. If you're in it for the long pull, believe me, you're going to have the ups and downs. And, uh, and that, I mean, the, the, when you're down, that's really what tests uh, your, uh, your will, you know, to just pull out of your willpower and uh, your mindset. You know, all of those elements, they're so important because, uh, again, it's, <laughs> it's not going to be always a better roses. When you're at the top, uh, you know darn well that it's not going to last, and you fight like crazy, you know, to uh, to try to maintain the momentum, whatever it is that keeps you there. And then, but uh, when it starts going the other way, you know, uh, you can't dwell on the negative. You got to start, keep searching, keep searching, and uh, maintain a positive attitude, you know, to pull out of it. I want to talk to you about class and uh, income. That is, if you had tried to pursue. Uh, racing in Europe, uh, as opposed to your, your, I think, good fortune in coming to America and to a place like Nazareth, would a Mario Andretti's career have been less probable in a class system like Europe than a place like America where really almost anybody can get anywhere in, in this country? Talk about that. Well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because uh, quite honestly, if... Um, uh, if we would have stayed in Europe, I don't see how in the world uh, I could have uh, ever, you know, especially within uh, the uh, the age limit, you know, to take advantage of a career, how I could have got started. So uh, I always say that uh, the negative of what happened uh, during the war, the displacement that we experienced as a family and everything was a negative, but... It became a huge positive by having the opportunity to come to the United States because uh, I I feel that I'm a true, true example of the American dream. Uh, I don't see how anything could have happened to me unless we, we came to the States. Even under the environment that my dad had me under, you know, because of his... Uh, you know, this farming and so I didn't want to do that. I didn't, I had no, you know, even as a youngster, I just despised that type of thing. You know, that's not what, uh, you know, set the fire in me. And, um, uh, you know, we loved, uh, uh, my uncle Bruno, you know, who was, you know, my mother's brother, you know, who was, uh, you know, he was, uh, an aviator in the aviation. He was, um, he had motorcycles. He had, you know, it was that type of a guy, you know. And uh, so there was something that, um, uh, as I say, just 
if we were to remain there, I probably, uh, I don't know, I probably would have become a plumber or something. Yeah, now, we love asking folks uh, just a few questions, Mara, just personal ones. Um, your biggest regret, that is, the decision you made that you wish you could have pulled back in your life? Well, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not sure that uh, I have any regrets, quite honestly. Um, I, you know... You could always do something better, you mm-hmm. know, by looking at it now. Okay, I might have ba- made a better decision uh, a different time. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, when um, at the end of, uh, uh, you know, my Formula One career with Lotus, uh, I had a couple of opportunities, one to go either with McLaren or Alfa Romeo. And I went with my heart. You know, I went with Alfa Romeo because, you know, I had a friend, uh, engineer there and so forth, and I thought Alfa Romeo was was ready to uh, to spring, you know, into the uh, to the top uh, in Formula One, and and instead I and I could have gone with McLaren. I could have probably won another ch- world championship with McLaren. So, you know, those are some things you call it a mistake, call yeah. it a miscalculation. Yeah, you could, you know, now that I have a chance to revisit, but overall, Lee, I have no regrets. I have no regrets whatsoever. You know, the, the, the positive way, way overcome the negatives. Uh, and so I, again, no regrets. That's great. What gives you, Mario, at this stage of your life, your deepest sense of fulfillment? The deepest sense of fulfillment is to be able to, with uh, everything that's going on in my career and uh, the distractions and everything, to have been able to keep the family together throughout. Yeah, and and faith does that play a role in your life, Mario? I mean, we know you're Catholic, but uh, talk about that that part of your life. Faith does, uh, and uh, again, uh, not just the fact that um, we had a priest in our family that was clergy, uh, and uh, that was never anything that was really pushed on us. As a matter of fact, my uncle priest, I love that man more than anyone. Uh, he was so such a modern thinker and everything. Even then. Uh, and uh, it was just that, but that uh, there was another chaplain in our camp, Lorenzo Tamberlini, who uh, really uh, somehow, without forcing things, uh, like uh, he instilled certain values, you know, that you maintain and keep, and, and always knowing that uh, you can't do things alone. You know, you need some help, whether it's, you know, it's, it's an abstract from upstairs or something. You know, you have to invoke something, believe in, in something, and I do. Uh, and and many times I said, you know, I need some help here, please. You know, and uh, <laughs> and 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 somehow it, it it works for you. It always did, and it always will. And last but not least, Mario, tell us about a hobby, a pastime, a, a secret passion that the audience might not expect Mario Andretti to have. Well, hobbies, I mean, that's uh, what we do. I just love uh, recreation, and as you can imagine, uh, I am fortunate. We have a, a place uh, up in the Poconos here. I have a lake, and, and I have uh, every toy imaginable, you know, ATVs, I have boats, I have uh, ultralight. Uh, we play tennis. We water ski. I just love all the things that, you know, they're energetic and uh, you ought to come up there. I'll get you tired really fast. You, you have a deal, Mario. You know, one thing I think never leaves some, some men is the thrill of speed 
and the thrill of competition, and that it doesn't ever leave you uh, as we as you get older, if that's who you are, and it's baked into your DNA. Mario, I I so appreciate you uh, taking the time, and I will most definitely take you up on the offer. By the way, your first victory uh, was in a place called Teaneck, New Jersey, and that's where I was born. I was born in Holy Name Hospital in Teaneck, New Jersey. So. Yeah, it was a big victory. I had a hundred lapper there with um, in my three quarter midget. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mario. Mario Andretti uh, for the hour. Thank you so much, sir. It's my pleasure. (laughs) You bet. Mario Andretti, American Dreamers, and go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our American Stories, and we talk about all different types of subjects here on the show, and we especially love to tell stories of small businesses and startups. And today, Faith brings us one that started right here in Mississippi. Water Valley is a magical little town. It's super small and it's super quaint, and it's, I've literally, like, I've never been in, well, there's a few places I've been, but I feel like that's that's one of the, the places that I've been where you really, like, you go and then you drive down Main Street and you feel like you've been, you, you take a step back in time many, many years. The other day I found myself wanting to do something a little different than my normal schedule. So I hopped in my car and drove about 20 or 30 minutes away from Oxford, Mississippi, all the way to Water Valley a small town of about 3,500. And exactly who was the voice that we were just listening to? She is the owner of the newest shop in town. It's called Heartbreak Coffee. I'm Gretchen Williams. I'm 31 years old. I live in Oxford, Mississippi. Grew up in Kansas City. Um, After high school, uh, I came to college at Ole Miss, and so I ended up in Oxford. I was here for four years. My last semester of college, I, well, I was studying exercise science, and I had to do an internship, and that's what took me out to Southern California. I worked for the city of Long Beach in the Department of Health. Once I graduated college, I, well, I hated what I was doing out there, but I loved being out there, so I decided I, I wanted to stay. Didn't know what I wanted to do with, with my degree or with my life, and so I Googled on my phone coffee shop because I thought that that would be an easy temporary job until I figured out what I wanted to do. There was one within walking distance from my house that I had just moved into in Seal Beach, California. So I walked down there, waited around for about 20 minutes for the, the owner to come in and ended up getting hired on the spot and working that day. But that's actually how I ended up working in coffee. And so I was out in California for about seven years working in a whole bunch of different coffee shops. And that's when the obsession with coffee began. About four years ago is when I started Heartbreak. Yeah, so I had been working in several different coffee shops since I'd graduated college. My voice cracks a lot, too, because I'm still going through puberty at 31. After working in, in a coffee shop, I, I mean, it was something that I really fell in love with and I became passionate about. Something that I decided, you know, I wanted to pursue and, like, do for the rest of my life, which 
is difficult to make a career out of coffee unless you like own your own shop or have your own roastery. Um, it's you know it's not that easy making minimum wage and tips as a barista and, and living off of that. If that were possible, that would be fantastic, but um, it's not. Yeah, I kind of came to that realization one afternoon and kind of started thinking about different things that, that I could do and that I was passionate about. And Coffee was really the only... I had dabbled in several different things, but that was the one thing that kind of always stuck out to me that, you know, I, di- I really did love and I was really a nerd about. I was kind of naturally good at. So that same day, I decided to go online and buy this little half-pound tabletop coffee roaster. And I had never roasted my own beans. <laughs> I had never worked in a coffee shop that had roasted their own beans, so I had no idea what I was doing. But it was something for me to kind of do on the side to continue to, to, to fuel this passion that I had. And um, once I ended up getting that roaster in and, you know, my first batch of green beans, I messed a lot of them up pretty, pretty good. Um, I made the mistake of roasting beans and then taking them right out of the roaster and trying them. And they're terrible. They have to degas for a little while. And uh, like usually about 48 hours. Um, so never eat coffee beans right out of the roaster because it's disgusting. <laughs> but, you know, slowly like some of them started tasting, you know, started tasting better and better. And there was, I was reading a lot about the, the topic. My girlfriend at the time, you know, saw my interest and my passion in it. And she was very encouraging of what I was doing. And um, she's a very talented artist and so she came up with the name heartbreak which was kind of an homage to everything I had been through like on my coffee journey at that point and just kind of this idea of like you know turning I don't know like all things like bittersweet you know and turning like the negative into a positive and that's kind of what heartbreak became for me and it wasn't even supposed to be it wasn't even supposed to be business at the beginning it wasn't ever a business at the beginning and that just kind of happened I was roasting out of my own kitchen and like I said my girlfriend at the time she ended up coming up with the name and then drawing the logo which is still the logo now and we made an Instagram and it was you know just something that was for fun and about two months after, you know, I started roasting, started getting some coffees that tasted, you know, what I thought was pretty decent. And so I had about 13 people over into my backyard and uh, we did like a little cupping. And I was like, well, I just want somebody else to try it because I think it tastes decent. But, you know, what do people who, you know, don't really know much about coffee think about it? I made these like little cards these little like scorecards for everybody to like write down and like take notes and I had four different single origin coffees I had everybody like rank them like you know what they thought was the best and then to what they thought was the worst like one through four and it was funny because um at the time you know I had like a definite like oh this is the best coffee this is the second best this is the third best this is definitely the worst and when I got back those cards at the end of the night it was like you know three people put this one number one three people put this one number one three people put this one number one and it helped me learn you know a a good lesson from the beginning of like 
obviously like everybody has different tastes and you know to be successful in this business or anything like not that you can always cater to everybody but like I knew from the beginning if I only catered to like my taste then that would be wrong indeed and when we come back Gretchen Williams story heartbreak coffee story our American dreamer series we love these stories of small businesses many of them become big some of them stay small but it's part of this culture part of our great country And when we come back, Gretchen's story continues. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers series continues. And this one, Gretchen Williams, right here in our own backyard, Heartbreak Coffee, Water Valley, Mississippi, a beautiful small town in a beautiful part of the country. And we're just about an hour south of Memphis, tucked in the hill country of Mississippi, not far from the Delta where, where the Delta Blues started. And let's now return to Gretchen's story. Literally... Two and a half years of my life went by, and we were in the process of, we had a successful Kickstarter that we raised, you know, money on, and we were in the process of opening up a shop in downtown Long Beach. Like, it kind of was all a blur from, like, month three until two and a half years later when, like I said, we had had signed a lease on a place in downtown Long Beach. Um, We were set to open up a shop, uh, a shop and roastery, The lease was already signed, and then things fell through. At that point was kind of the first time that, like, everything in that business came to a halt. And it was the first time that I was like, you know what, I kind of just, like, it's good, and I just need to, like, sit back for a second and decide the direction that I want to take this company instead of letting, you know, this company take me the direction that it was going. So I actually kind of put everything on the back burner for about nine months. And, it, you know, part of it, too, is just the fact that, like, it was super defeating. You know, I just had to rethink things. And I ended up getting a job working for Blue Bottle up in Venice Beach, which I knew that heartbreak was something that I wanted to do. You know, that was kind of my baby that I created. Uh, It was actually on my 30th birthday, which was June 30th of uh, 2016. I had decided that, like, as much as I loved being in California, I was getting older and, like, you know, I wanted to have a little bit slower-paced, more affordable life, and heartbreak was still something that I wanted to do. And actually, Oxford and Water Valley had always been in the back of my mind um, as far as, you know, someplace that even if I had had a shop in California, I always wanted to come back here um, and open up a shop, too. I mean, a college town, and it's pretty untouched as far as, like, specialty coffee goes. So I always thought that, you know, what I was doing would be well-received here. And so I had a 16-foot U-Haul packed up with the back of my roaster in the back of that, which is like 350 pounds. It's not easy to move. Yeah, I drove with my two dogs and my roaster and, and uh, you know, the rest of my U-Haul 
from California to Oxford. I was like, this is what I'm gonna, you know, this is what I'm gonna do now. He was back in town, and it was time to figure out what the heck it was that she was gonna do next. So once I got back to Oxford, I, I started doing, which I didn't mention before, but I had a seven, I, I bought a 79 Volkswagen bus, and this was before that yeah, I had signed a lease on a place out in California, and part of the reason was, you know, real estate's so expensive out there, and I had gone on Craigslist, and I had I had sold my my Jeep Wrangler at the time, and I decided that it was a smart investment to get a 1979 Volkswagen bus. It wasn't necessarily, but <laughs> it looks cute. But yeah, painted the logo on the side, and and that's kind of the vessel that we used um, to do pop-ups and stuff like that out in California. And had my bus shipped out here, uh, and I decided, you know. I would basically kind of do the same route. But what is it about coffee that she loves so much? I think at first it was just being like in coffee shops. You know, the interactions that you get with people, your regulars, you're just random folks that you get coming in. But you're creating something that's that's so small and like so the most like simplistic thing really but like it's a huge part of somebody's day and it really can like make or break it and 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 I love like I love being a part of that and I think that's what you know you see you see a lot in coffee shops too you know you see these interactions between people and I mean you see people fall in love and you see people break up and you see you know people come together of different walks of life and it's 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 just really like kind of magical space. But then followed the interest into the science behind the coffee. After working in coffee for a couple years, I went I went up to LA and, and I had uh, my first cappuccino at a specialty coffee shop and it was Intelligentsia in Silver Lake. And I remember just kind of being blown away and thinking like, why in the world does this taste so much better than what I'm making in my, in my shop? Not only fell in love with the cafe aspect of it, which I already very much enjoyed, but then just kind of became a coffee nerd. It feels inadequate to say that Gretchen loves coffee, but she does have a good enough head on her shoulders to know that everybody's tastes are different. Just like she learned in that first tasting in her backyard. There's this lack of bridge kind of between specialty coffee and and customer service. You know, you walk into a lot of these specialty shops and they don't even put out cream or sugar because they're like, oh, my coffee is the best and, and it's roasted to perfection and you shouldn't have to add anything. Like, you have to drink it like this or, you know, we don't have syrup flavors because you, you know, you shouldn't have to add anything to your coffee, which like I I get the understanding of it. I get why being a purist, like, you know, that's that's our job as, like, you know, a creator of, of coffee and as a roaster to highlight these natural, you know, notes and nuances within these beans. And, like, so, again, like, you know, you feel like you've created something and you don't want somebody to ruin it. What matters just as much as having a, a quality product is having the customer have an enjoyable experience with that product. I literally cannot care if somebody wants black coffee or if they want like a little bit of coffee with their cream in the morning. Like if they're enjoying it, then I've done my job. She just wants to make something that brings people together. And she felt the best place to do that was in Mississippi. And maybe living in the big cities is not all it's cracked up to be. Well, at least for Gretchen. Has decided that small town America 
is what she calls home. Ended up being approached uh, about a space down in Water Valley and, and now have a roastery and a coffee shop down in Water Valley, Mississippi, which is crazy, but amazing. And everything has worked out exactly how it needs. And I think, you know, things are things are only going to go up from here, hopefully. Maybe not because the name's heartbreak, so who knows. <laughs> from her backyard in California to a VW bus in Mississippi and now a storefront in Water Valley. It's funny, one of... A story that I have about Water Valley was my ex-girlfriend who started this, well, who started Heartbreak with me, she's half Costa Rican, half Peruvian. And her grandmother, her grandmother's from Peru, lives in Peru, but she'll come over and she'll she'll stay with them in California for six months and then go back uh, to Peru for six months. And when I say Peru, it's not like, you know, it's not like she doesn't live in a big city. She lives like up in the mountains on this farm, like makes cheese and has like goats. When she came several years ago, it was probably... I don't know, four or five years ago, um, she actually came to Oxford. She, we went to Water Valley, and we took we took her grandmother, so this, you know, 70-some-year-old Peruvian lady to Water Valley, Mississippi. And we had, you know, she had been all over California, and we had taken her all over Oxford. We go to Water Valley, and of all places in Water Valley, we go to Piggly Wiggly, which <laughs> is, you know, this this small little grocery store, and, and outside of Piggly Wiggly, there are two picnic bitches in in the parking lot, and they're old and, like, rotted. And, I mean, you know, if you touch them, you'll get a splinter. They're in terrible shape. But they have this chocolate pudding in the deli section of Piggly Wiggly. So we went there, and we got this chocolate pudding, and we were sitting out at these picnic tables, and it was hot and humid outside. I mean, literally everything about this picture was, like, miserable. And her grandma's eating this pudding and, like, looking out into the scenery of the Piggly Wiggly parking lot, which doesn't have much to offer, I can promise you that. And all of a sudden, she says in Spanish, and she says, this is living. And I was like, dang, grandma just dropped some truth. <laughs> like, you're absolutely right. Like, it's, and that's something that's, like, always stuck with me about Water Valley. And, and still to this day, that's, that's, like, that's how I feel about Water Valley. And, like, I want to incorporate that, like, into the shop somehow, like, make some sort of sign or something that says this is living. But I love that. And I love how, like, you know, it's the simplest things. But, like, just being able, you know, again, like, to relax and, like, have good food and, like, good company. And, like, that's all you need in life. Like, that, Water Valley, this is living. And, and I think she kind of grasp a perfect picture of like what Water Valley, Mississippi is. Good food, good company. And now that heartbreak is there, a great cup of coffee. And great job as always, Faith. And that was Gretchen Williams, her little piece of heaven on earth in Water Valley, Mississippi. This is living, folks. And there are so many ways to live here in this great country. And so many small business owners A part of the American dream brings so much value and so much that we all care for in our small towns and our big towns. Gretchen's story here on Our American Story.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and even public policy when it hits the pavement and affects you, the listener. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this next story. No one has more resilience or matches my practical, tactical brilliance. You want to fight for your land back? I need my right hand man back. Yeah. Get your right hand man back. You know you gotta get your right hand man back. I mean, you gotta put some thought into the land, but the sooner the better to get your right hand man back. Alexander Hamilton. You might be asking, what the heck am I listening to? And if you've been listening closely, you might be asking, are they rapping about the Founding Fathers? Or you might be saying, that's one of my favorite songs. This song, Guns and Ships, was from the Broadway musical Hamilton. The surprising smash hit, given that it was a musical about a founding father. Alexander Hamilton. And a musical that used the genre of rap to talk about a dead white founding father at that. But come on, tell me you're at least not somewhat intrigued by this absurdity. That's got to be leading the guy on our $10 bill to be rolling in his grave. And one of the other Hamilton songs, A Farmer Refuted, shows Alexander Hamilton singing it. But surely that's not how it went down in real life. Of course, Hamilton didn't sing publicly. Most of the Founding Fathers were just a wee bit too stiff for that. No, but that's not what I mean. Hamilton didn't identify himself publicly with the words, the words that the musical used to create this song. His own words. Hamilton wrote them, but didn't sign them under his name. He made himself anonymous. Specifically, he called himself, quote unquote, an anonymous friend. Now, you might consider himself a coward for not attaching his name to it, or you might not. The year was 1774, and Alexander Hamilton, then a 17-year-old orphan born out of wedlock on a tiny Caribbean island, found himself at King's College in New York City far from home. His childhood writing landed him there. Noted for its, quote, bombastic excesses with such verve and gusto that it moved the island community to come together and collect a fund to send the young chap to the big city. And the encouragement only encouraged him to write more. And how could he not? A revolution was underway. The Boston Massacre occurred four years earlier. Paul Revere and Samuel Adams, yes, that Samuel Adams that inspired the beer, helped inspire a riot against the British for taxing them without representation for them in the British Parliament. And the British shot and killed five Americans. Then, one year earlier, came the throwing of British tea into the ocean, the Boston Tea Party. And then, that very year came the forming of a protest government to the British, the Continental Congress. And let's just say that every American wasn't gung-ho about it. The beginning. 
beginning, the majority of the people were against the revolution. That's Daniel Mark Epstein, the author of The Loyal Son, the book on the greatest microcosm of America's divisions, the division of Benjamin Franklin and his own son, William. His father visited him and he did everything he could to try to get him to come over to the side of the revolutionaries because that was his side and the family's side and William refused. And William ended up being the last royal governor to do the king's business in America, stubbornly refused to leave the governor's mansion and had to be taken away bodily and was put into the worst prison in America, the Litchfield Jail where he was in solitary confinement with bread and water for 18 months and suffered terribly. Franklin said nothing had ever hurt him so bad in his entire life. Whatever side you claimed, you were staking a claim to, endangering your life. Out of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence who declared, we mutually pledged to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor on behalf of this cause. Nine of them did lose their lives. 17 of them lost their fortunes, making it over a third of them who lost the first two, but none of them lost the third, their sacred honor. This reality is why one third of Americans didn't take a side in 1776. They were just hoping to survive. And according to Brad Smith, the chairman of the Center for Competitive Politics, it likely was just one of the reasons, a very understandable one, why the 17-year-old Hamilton and many of the founding fathers wrote anonymously. But there were other reasons, too. Hamilton's very first published writing was a piece that he published under the title A Friend of America. And he was responding to arguments made by various loyalist preachers. Loyal to the British crown. In particular, Episcopalian Bishop Samuel Seabury, although he didn't know it was Samuel Seabury because Seabury himself used a pseudonym. He used the name a farmer. So Hamilton responded with this letter called A Friend of America. And then Seabury, still anonymously, they didn't know who, the two of them didn't know who they were talking to. Seabury responded, and Hamilton then published this paper called A Farmer Refuted, which he published under the name A Sincere Friend of America. Apparently he thought a friend of America wasn't enough. So that's the history of it. And it was very common in those days for people to write under pseudonyms or to publish anonymously for a number of reasons, including that they wanted to not necessarily have their political disagreements overflow into the social areas where they may interact or business where they may interact. They wanted to sometimes not have their, you know, harsh, plain language said to one another interfere with their ability to reach compromises on other political matters. And, and above all, there was sort of a concept that readers should look at the arguments involved and that by publishing things under pseudonyms or anonymously, you forced people to deal with the arguments rather than to attack the messenger, rather than to attack the speaker. There's a good chance that the United States would not exist were it not for anonymous speech. I think the, the role of Thomas Paine's writings in particular, Common Sense and then The Crisis, were very, very important. 
and you wouldn't have wanted to publish those under your own name in, in that time because you would have risked perhaps your own death. And great job on that, Alex, and what a piece of history. And by the way, it's not just speech. People's donations to causes, well, those are private matters. And we're going to be getting into the NAACP in the state of Alabama. Because there were people in Alabama, many white people, who supported the cause of desegregation. And they gave to the NAACP. And at a certain point in time, the state of Alabama came into the NAACP and said, we want those names. And we know why the state wanted those names. They wanted to out those people, have the Klan deter those people from doing the right thing. There's a history of anonymous speech, anonymous donations, and my goodness, the ultimate anonymous act, the vote. Anonymous speech, Alexander's anonymous speech, the Federalist Papers themselves, folks, written under anonymous names by three great Americans. More on this subject, it's a big one. Here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite segments, the story of a song. And today's comes from an artist whose songs are best known through cover versions by other musicians. His Jersey Girl was performed by Bruce Springsteen. His All 55 was sung by the Eagles. Down There by the Train by Johnny Cash. I Hope That I Don't Fall in Love with You by 10,000 Maniacs. The Long Way Home by Nora Jones. I Don't Want to Grow Up by The Ramones. And Downtown Train by Rod Stewart. And by the way, just from the mix of those artists, you've got to say, wow, what range. Today's song is about one man, one woman, and one tavern. With no further ado, let's take a listen to find out more about this one-of-a-kind American singer-songwriter. Our next guest is one of the most distinctive writers and performers working today. He's kind of a combination poet, jazz singer, and vagrant. He is a mix, mixture of um, Satchmo Armstrong and Humphrey Bogart. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tom Waits. How are you, Tom? Oh, I'm better than nothing. Your songs are about waitresses and bartenders and mums. Why do you celebrate these people in song? For the same reason that a lawyer hangs out in a pool room or or you find a lot of photographers at a wedding, you know? 
because I uh, find a lot of ideas here and there's a lot of life going on around here and, um, you know, so I'm uh, kind of a bit of a private investigator, maybe, you know. You know, my dad spent a lot of time in the bars. My dad drank in the afternoon in really dark bars. So I was drawn to the dark places. Everybody needs a different climate in order to create. Mine usually comes in, uh, if I'm talking with somebody in a bar or something, I uh, get a couple of loggers and uh, try to stretch out in conversation. I try to open things up and then uh, I try to remember it all later and then I write it down. There's a, a real romance to hanging around these places. It's where you go to meet girls, but it's also where you go to invent yourself in strangers' eyes. He's an extraordinary painter of pictures, as well as a teller of stories. Looking for the heart of Saturday night Tell me is it the crack of the pool balls Neon buzzing Loneliness, it's so much at the heart of so much of his music, I think. It's just a longing for something and being alone and how do you live with that and how do you deal with it? Magic or the melancholy tearing your eyes. I think Waits is a poet of doomed no-hopers. People who are almost like characters from a noir novel. They're getting their last chance at love. Stumbling onto the heart he was just a man out of time, clearly, and he knew it, I think, <laughs> obviously, and he, he played with it. The craft and young genius of someone who was coming up with lyrics that were on a par with someone like Johnny Mercer or Hoagie Carmichael or any of the songwriters that had been the backbone of the classic American songbook. Swam always on the run. Swam, I changed my name. The Great American Songbook is something that either gets to you or it doesn't. And it got to Tom because there was a lot of intelligence in that, in the lyrics of those songs. I would go over to my friends' houses and go into the den with their dads and find out what they were listening to. I couldn't wait to be an old man. I was about 13 now. I didn't really identify with the music of my own generation, but I seemed to like the old stuff, Cole Porter and Gershwin and Frank Sinatra. What is this thing called love? Tom had that wonderful talent to absorb all of these things this that he saw. It's like storing up paints and being able to dig out the colors you want when you get ready to paint a picture. And this is what he does. He paints pictures. And so true. And one of Tom Waits's most heartbreaking, beautiful picture songs is called I Hope That I Don't Fall In Love With You. This tender storyteller with a boozy baritone while wearing a $7 suit and an old man's weathered fedora hat expresses what a billion men have felt not the least on a lonely Saturday night. Here's I Hope That I Don't Fall In Love With You. One, two, three, 
turn in the fourth phrase, I hope that you don't fall in love with me. After exposing all of his fears of commitment, the narrator realizes he is falling for this girl that he's never met, but now must face the realization she may return the favor. You can feel the pain of a man afraid of commitment in this song. He fumbles and worries, and once he finally gets the confidence to face her, well, it's too late. She's gone, and he knows he's missed his shot. And that's the world of Tom Waits. That's the world he inhabited in his music. I was always wanting to be an old man, he said. 
listening to Sinatra when everybody else was listening to rock and roll. The loneliness, by the way, in Sinatra's music, too. You want to hear a great hour. Listen to our hour on the life of Frank Sinatra here on Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, the work of Tom Waits, the life of Tom Waits, the story of a song, I Hope I Don't Fall in Love with You. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories. 